Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 14 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Today is Tuesday, April 25th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, we have these beautiful brand new microphones. These are nice. Uh, they, are, they are blue microphones. The Yeti Pro 2.0, if you are a sound file, which we have clearly not been if you've listened to any of the first 13 episodes yeah, the, of this podcast. Audio files have clearly been <laughs> suffering. And, and yes, we know we still don't have music. I did recommend uh, earlier to Steve that we uh, bring kazoos. And uh, you know, <laughs> I have a lot of children's musical toys at the house. I can bring them in. So I just have a lot of children's songs. Like the, the Sesame Street alphabet is in my head right now. But we could just start humming that. Or, you know, I might just bring in a guitar and we'll just... Do something extemporaneous. E is for elbow. Oh my God. Okay. What else are we going to talk about today, Steve? Oh, that's it. No. Um. So, so as opposed to last week, where our, Bobby, I thought we were a little light for content. We don't really have that problem today. That is not a problem today. There, there's some stuff going on. Uh, I there's this guy Assange. Assange. There, he's a fella who's in the Ecuadorian embassy in Are, London. Ha- haven't we all been in the Ecuadorian embassy in London at one point in our Metaphorically lives? Metaphorically speaking, many of us feel like we're there right now. The Hotel Ecuadoria. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he may be glad he's staying there since now we are hearing hints that DOJ is reconsidering whether to pursue legal uh, action against him should he ever step foot outside of there and should he not go straight to Sweden to face sexual assault charges. Should he end up in U.S. hands, he may face charges after all. So, Steve, we have a lot to talk about in relation to things like the Espionage Act and conspiracy and theft of government property. Never heard of any of those things. We'll go. I, I, I've, I've heard somebody using your name has written some about oh, this. Well, you know, I've heard that there are multiple of me, so maybe it was the other guy. It certainly seems like it from a productivity point of view. So we'll do a deep dive on <laughs> On, on I was going to say from an intellectual consistency point of view. But, you <laughs> There's know. more than one. There's more than one. Uh, so after Assange, we'll turn to everybody's second favorite person in the news, uh, former li- retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Yes, uh, the water's uh, gotten a little bit hotter. Hotter still. Hotter and higher. Hotter and higher. It's a bad combination. <laughs> uh, so we'll talk about uh, both his evolving uh Legal risks. So that'll be our theme, I guess. First Assange and now. And also, and also apparently the first uh, uh, disagreement between congressional overseers and the White House and the Trump administration. Oh, imagine that. A, a congressional executive disagreement on production of documents. I am shocked, shocked that gambling is happening in Casablanca. No, but here it is April 25th. When was the last administration where it took three months before <laughs> Congress no, got that's pissed a fast off point. about document? That, that's a know? fair point. We usually get there much faster <laughs> to that point. Um, so we'll talk about the, this most recent development. Um, then we'll turn our attention to uh, uh, another cert denial. Uh, It's worth discussing. So speaking of transparency, on Monday, the Supreme Court uh, denied cert, Bobby, not surprisingly, but I think perhaps a little bit disappointingly, um, in ACLU versus CIA, a freedom of information case where the ACLU was seeking the production of the full 6,000-plus page um, copy of the Senate Intelligence Committee's study into the CIA rendition, uh, detention, and interrogation program, informally known as the torture report. So they somebody just didn't want to make copies of that thing and they're resisting on the grounds of paperwork. <laughs> undue paperwork. It's it's not environmentally sound. Have you ever read the Paperwork Reduction Act? <laughs> I felt that to print it out and read it would be <laughs> the uh, violation yes. of the Paperwork Reduction <laughs> Act. Exactly. I sure wasn't gonna read that online. <laughs> um, oh, all right, there. so so after that we're gonna pivot Bobby to there's some interesting developments in the news about um, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, some disclosures from last week, and I think maybe the first real signs that the reauthorization fight in Congress is is in the offing. Yeah, so we'll talk about some of those developments and, and a few related matters. This this will not be our deep dive into 702, which is coming. We frankly have been waiting for a quieter week where, where we, we could devote a show to We might be waiting a long time. <laughs> it, could be, it could be early December and hopefully before then. August, right? Nothing ever happens in August. Nothing, that's true, including this podcast, most likely. Surely it'll be long canceled by then. Hey, now. <laughs> we'll see. We, we still haven't figured out who's going to cancel us. Yeah, our spouses. Most our spouses. Likely. <laughs> Sheer familial embarrassment ought to do it. Um, and then finally, with a little bit of frivolity, uh, I am going to put in my pitch for who is the absolute best character on television right now. Spoiler alert, uh, the person who got knocked out of this last night was Tyrion Lannister. So it had been, you know, Tyrion Lannister. Oh, okay, now now you have me interested. I am on pins and needles on this one. I assume we're confining this to fictional characters? Fictional characters in currently running television shows. That's the category. And, and just to be clear, we're not counting the actual government of this country. That's what a really tough category. What, what, I was going to say, what, what television show is that a fictional? We're I, living I, in the television <laughs> show every day. This whole podcast is like a, a review 
Yeah, but sadly, it's not fiction. That's what I mean. So we'll keep it to the, the truly fictional stuff. And then, Bobby, per uh, I think Andy Priest request, you're going to recommend a, a movie or two, or at least I, say something about movies. Yes, Andy, you inspired me. I, I have some comments to share about uh, two films in particular, two great works of art I want to comment on. <laughs> <laughs> sadly, I mean that in all seriousness. So all right. At this point, we're going to have to hit the fast forward button. So, so let's start with Assange, uh, everyone's favorite. I don't know what he is. Uh, provocateur. How provocateur. About that? Ooh, provocateur. That's yeah, very neutral. That's yeah. very politically correct. So, so Bobby, why the hell is he back in the news? Uh, so, um, let's and, and, and let me suggest. <laughs> let, let me suggest that the answer rhymes with F. Meshins. Hmm. F. Meshins. Is that the Hawaii guy? Oh God. <laughs> Never mind. I thought, I thought we weren't going to start with Hawaii. You made I, me promise that we weren't going to start with Hawaii, and then you brought it up. It is true, but I also, you'll recall, I did say if the, the comedic moment presented itself. I don't think it did. I think you You're right it. about that. All right, in all seriousness, why, why are we talking about Assange again all of a sudden? Um, there, is, uh, there have been a series of, of stories in the media over the past week suggesting that the Justice Department is reviving – Look, the criminal investigation of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, which goes back to the Obama administration, was never formally closed, as the media reports it. And it really started with the Iraq war tapes, right? So this, I think the best way to think about it, to tell a very long story in a very short way, when uh, Bradley slash Chelsea Manning, uh, but Bradley Manning at the time, uh, downloaded a huge volume of material off of Cipernet and other classified systems, or at least that classified system, I forget whether there were other systems as well, and then conveyed it to the public via WikiLeaks. Uh, this set off an, an, a bewildering array of legal consequences, one of which was Manning's court-martial, uh, but also raised the question, would Julian Assange and or organizationally WikiLeaks, would they be prosecuted or at least indicted um, whether they could, whether anyone could be hauled into court for an actual trial was a different matter. And in the Obama administration, there was a lot of somewhat public wrangling over whether it was possible to pursue charges to, uh, against the publisher of illegally leaked information. If you, if you went after WikiLeaks, Steve, how could you not therefore, uh, how could you distinguish the New York Times, the Washington Post, or any other mainstream media outlet that also would be the recipient of, in some cases, uh, similarly illegally leaked information? The Obama administration ultimately decided not to pursue the charges, whether it was because they felt that at the end of the day, the First Amendment actually protected what had happened here, whether it was instead a sense that this will be too politically explosive or some, some third reason was never stated in any definitive public way, but charges were not brought. But the investigation remained open. In the meantime, WikiLeaks has gone on to do plenty of other things. <laughs> and most notably, most recently, the, uh, the public disclosure of what were alleged to be a number of, of CIA uh, uh, tools, malware tools to uh, – uh, share those with the public. And in between, you have the, the WikiLeaks role, of course, in uh, promoting attention to emails stolen from the DNC and John Podesta, et cetera. Although, of course, that that trove of information, right, I think may not come within the codicils of the Espionage Act. That might be more of the, right. like right. the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and other sort of more generic data right. privacy laws. I think it factors in the story only insofar as it might and this is a complete speculative uh, suggestion, it might be parlayed if there's evidence into a, into a tie between WikiLeaks and, and Russian intelligence services. So, so let's back up. So, so Bobby, the Espionage Act, I mean, we've, we've, ta- we've alluded to it before. We've talked about it briefly before. Is there any question in your mind whether WikiLeaks um, and Assange as its, as its head and presumably you know, biggest sort of director violated the Espionage Act? No, uh, by its terms, I think it, there's there are a couple of ways you could charge this. Indeed, I think there's there's a whole handful of statutes you could charge, including the, my favorite, the Civil War Era Conversion of Property Statute, 18 uh, U.S.C. 641. I got a copy of it right here, <laughs> as I am want to do. Uh, look, Steve, why don't we tell our gentle listeners about some of the the main instruments here? And we, we've done this before in a prior episode, and in, in that case, you might want to fast forward a bit. Now, let's give it what five or, minutes? Jump or, ahead five minutes, or, or we'll see if they remember. <laughs> or indeed, spot the contradictions. I'm sure there will be some. Um, the, the main place people tend to look when they talk about the Espionage Act is they talk about 18 U.S. Code, Section 793, which has many subparts, each of which is its own little complex beast. We're looking usually at 793E. Is that right, Steve? In this context. I mean, so, yeah. so seven, before, before we get to conspiracy. So 793D is usually what we look at when we're talking about leakers because 793D is when the perpetrator is someone who was lawfully in possession 
of the, quote, information relating to the national defense. E is when the perpetrator is someone who was not lawfully in possession of the same information. So conveniently, it goes in alphabetical order. D comes first. It's for the leakers. That's not what we're talking about here with Assange. We're talking about Assange as the recipient of leaked information. And let me just say, I'm, I'm not even sure. I wouldn't say D is for the leakers, right? I think right. D, when Congress wrote the Espionage Act, I don't think they were thinking of leakers. I think they were thinking of German spies no, right. working in the War Department. Absolutely. And just you know, for those who don't recall, this is in 1917. This is a World War One uh, actually Happy anniversary. Yeah, I was going to say we should look up what day 1917 this became law. What if it was today? That would be quite the coincidence. I'd feel pretty stupid that we didn't figure that out on our own. This tells you more than you you probably suspected. There's no prep, and uh, we're proving it right now. So, Bobby, so 793E seems to suggest that you could prosecute any number of third parties for um, not publishing, for receiving, for accessing, for saving. So let me uh, let me give a quick quote. Uh, whoever, by the I mean, way, uh, June fifteenth, nineteen seventeen. So we, we've got a couple months to set the anniversary. Espionage Act Day celebrated <laughs> on June fifteenth. Mark your calendars. We are less than two months away. From, Can't wait. That'll be a special episode. I assure you. Uh, Seven ninety three says that whoever having unauthorized possession of, and I'll, I'll skip a bunch here, any document uh, relating to, and I'll paraphrase here, national defense information. Um, information which the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation. If you willfully communicate that to any person not entitled to receive it, or if you willfully retain it and fail to deliver it to the, and now I'm paraphrasing here, the, the U.S. government, um, then you're violating the statute. So this is sweepingly broad. You, you can't receive it and publish it. And indeed, you're not even supposed to have it and fail to turn it back over. And of course, they're thinking about this sort of tangible information space. You've been handed the photograph. You've been handed the plans. You've got this document. Well, don't publish it and give it back is the sort of command of 793E. And on its face, it obviously poses a direct threat to to newspapers every day, which are constantly full of, of information that um, they are not authorized to possess in, in publishing. And Steve, am I right? There's never been a prosecution of a publishing entity. The closest we've got is the attempted prior restraint in the Pentagon Papers case, correct? Yes. I mean, there was an investigation during World War II of the Chicago Tribune um, because the Chicago Tribune, shortly after the Battle of Midway, published a story from which it should have been clear that a large reason why the United States won the Battle of Midway was because we had broken Japanese naval codes. Right. Um, and so the Roosevelt administration, the story goes, did this whole big behind-the-scenes investigation and was all ready to try the Tribune. Yeah, but that would ex- – I mean, talk about your, the worst case of gray mail of all time, right? Yes. It, then the secret would have gotten out. And indeed, it turns out that the Japanese did not – learn from the Tribune story. Amazing. Yeah, I guess it's not so much a gray mail as more of a Streisand effect uh, scenario. You know, yeah, pick your metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so, but but you, you mentioned, I mean, there. but so there's been one really interesting attempted prosecution under 793E, and this is the APAC, the American-Israel Public Action Committee um, prosecution from 2005, when the government went after these two lobbyists, uh, Rosen and Weitzman, um, who basically were the go-betweens between a State Department employee named Franklin and the Israeli government. Um, and the, the prosecution of Rosen and Weitzman was meant to sort of test whether you really could have a viable third-party liability theory under it, the Espionage Act. And just to emphasize, so that was an immediate entity. These were lobbyists. And, and it, that was an easier case because the media entity, uh, as a defendant, adds this layer of what about freedom of the press? Right. Right that, right, that the media might have a First Amendment defense that, say, Rosen and Weitzman did not accept. And here's where things get interesting. It's not at all clear to me that the media has any different of a First Amendment defense in that context. Yeah, no, why should they? Right, from you or me or a blogger or, dare I say, Julian Assange. Well, so wouldn't the argument be that uh, the media, if, if it was, say, the New York Times and, and they were being compared to the Rosen and Weitzman situation, they say, look, in our case, we're actually trying to inform the public. That's the core of the First Amendment value at stake. Whereas those guys were having private conversations with, you know, well, they were talking to journalists, but, you know, maybe I get, maybe that gets it close. But this, so, this, so I think, so let's just sort of put this in context for, for our listeners, right? So I think we agree that there's no question that a sufficiently aggressive prosecutor could easily make the case that what we believe Assange and WikiLeaks have done 
violates the letter of 793E. I, I, I think even a passive prosecutor okay. can easily show And so that. then everything rises. And so assuming that the case is brought, right, and that you're not just going to exercise prosecutorial discretion, right. everything then rises and falls on the availability and scope of a First Amendment defense. Right. And so the problem here, Bobby, is then we're walking into something of uncharted territory. Right. Um, the Supreme Court has said, as you mentioned just now, that the First Amendment does protect the right to disclose confidential information where the information is on a matter of public concern and where the disclosure, the value to the public in some way outweighs right, the right. harm to the individuals. Ah, a balancing test. Well, indeed, it's literally called Pickering balancing mm-hmm. after the 1968 or 69 Supreme Court case that articulated it. Um, and the most recent case that's on point, there's a 2001 decision called yeah. Bartnicki versus Vopper. Right. Um, and in Bartnicki, you had a radio station that uh, broadcast over the air an illegally uh, wiretapped phone call that exposed very damaging information right. about a public official. Right, it was a, like a union negotiation exactly. of some kind. Um, and so the question was whether the radio station could be held liable, right, for various various tor- civil and criminal liability rising out of the broadcast. And the Supreme Court said no. Right. But with a lot of very particular reasons why they said no. A lot of very particular reasons, including the fact that the radio station itself um, had lawfully obtained the, the audio tape. Right, so so we have confidential information in that case, not classified information, right. and we have information that was lawfully obtained by the relevant media entity, which would not be true here. Right, and, and let me let me put a finer point on that. There was a strong emphasis across. There are many opinions in that case. There's a lot of emphasis on the fact that the radio station had no role in the right. original intercept. Someone else took it upon themselves to do that and, then and approached then the radio station. Sort of like a, a envelope in the you know in the dry, in the mailbox right. situation. So you can you can if you're going to go after WikiLeaks and Assange, you can certainly, insofar as you have court admissible evidence of their collaboration with Manning in particular, or perhaps others, that's a way you can distinguish that that 2001 Supreme Court case. But, you know, notice that doesn't help you fend off the specter, if, if you want to fend off the specter, of potentially having the same rule applicable to the New York Times and to the Washington Post, well, that's And that's the concern. I mean, so there's a lot of discussion on Twitter that it should be obvious that, I mean, I, I got a couple of trolls saying, yeah, you know, yeah. how, how, how am I so stupid that I can't see the difference right. between... Only a professor could come up with this as a difficulty, right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> Who can't, I, I can't see the, the distinction thing. between Julian Assange and the New York Times. I, I can see it perfectly, as can you. The question is, can you prove it in court with admissible evidence, even if there is... You know, the best case scenario for the government is they have extensive uh, evidence showing both direct collaboration between Assange and Manning or, or perhaps other leakers, uh, and even better if they can show direct collaboration with the Russian government. Which right, was, because otherwise, right, all they're doing is prosecuting Assange for being an intermediary, right, for, right. for, for taking classified information that came to him over the transom right. and redistributing it to the public. And that is, for every relevant purpose, Bobby, no different from what the New York Times does when it publishes a story that includes classified information. Right. So I think there's there's two possible ways to try to get around it. One is to show an active involvement of WikiLeaks and Assange where they're, they're actually part and parcel of the original theft of the information. Right. So they're not a third party. And this is where uh, there's been a whispering, at least I think in Ellen Nakashima's piece, yep. uh, I think they referenced the possibility they're looking at a conspiracy charge. And this that's the key. This could be conspiracy to steal the information in the first place. Now, there are still possible precedential risk there for what that might mean for a, uh, a mainstream media journalist who's who's cajoling a source into being cooperative. Because right, realistically, the way the Washington works is there aren't that many blind dead drops of classified information into a reporter's mailbox. Right, right, right. right? These are sophisticated yeah. relationships that are cultivated over years. So there's still an issue there. But one can imagine some realistic fact patterns where the degree of involvement was uh, pretty substantial here. We know of one thing in the public record so far. That's during the court-martial of Manning. Uh, it, it came out that at one point Manning and Assange were uh chatting back and forth, uh, getting help from Manning from Assange about how to crack a password to access Cipernet anonymously. That's a very active form of collaboration. So there's no question in my mind you can use that to get conspiracy. Well, but also, I mean, it seems to me, Bobby, that if you really have this much evidence against Assange, you don't even need the Espionage Act, right? That you can go after him under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right? Section 1030, Mm -hmm. um, right? That, you know, you can go after him for 
maybe converting government property. That's your your 641 example, right? Yes. We got we got to talk about that one because it, it sounds so mundane. But 641 is uh, expressly mentioned in one of the stories, right? right? So clearly they are looking at this section 641. Uh, Whoever receives or or re- retains government property with intent to convert it to his use or gain, knowing it to have been embezzled, stolen, purloined, or converted, Ooh. is liable. Um, so I, I, it could be this is a conspiracy uh, to steal government property. That actually seems like a pretty good description of what Assange was trying to do. But then the question is going to be, so there's, there's a really interesting Fourth Circuit case from the 1980s called the United States versus Morrison. Um, Morrison, helped by some amici, argued that the conversion statute should be limited to the common law uh, tort of conversion, right? And the common law tort of conversion requires dispossession of the original right. property holder. Um, when you have what year was that case? Nineteen. Well, the Fourth that, Circuit decision was nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, that sounds super nineteen eighties to me. <laughs> Tangible. You got you got to take it from him. Stealing the data. No, no, no. That was the argument. The Fourth yeah. Circuit rejected it. Good. Right. Good. So remember, in Morrison, the issue was a bunch of classified photographs of a new class of Soviet uh, aircraft carrier. Oh yeah. Um, and Morrison said, "Listen, the government still has its photos. I just copied them." Yeah. Right, and the the Fourth Circuit said, "Yeah, that's still that, conversion." That's cute, but yeah. Um, so you know, so you can have it there now. You might, Bobby, in the conversion case, still have the First Amendment question. Um, I'm not sure in a sort of CFAA computer fraud and the Abuse Act prosecution, that's you right. have quite the same First Amendment arguments. Right, and so what I anticipate will happen here is that they probably will drop an indictment at some point, if only to be seen to be doing something the Obama administration didn't do right, and to seem tougher on this issue and include as many of these charges as we've been talking about as possible. Yeah, although maybe, I mean, maybe cooler heads will prevail and they won't include a 793E charge. I mean, I think because that's when yeah. everyone's going right, to blow a gasket. That's true. And insofar as anyone in a position of influence is listening to this, <laughs> do yourself a favor. First, uh, look at a map and figure out that Hawaii is an island in the Pacific, but it is not the island on which the District of Hawaii sits. There you go. So that's, that's task one. But task two is, <laughs> um, you know, take a lesson from the executive order fiasco on, on immigration. Right. And vet, and, and vet this thing carefully. D- in this context, don't put stuff in there that's not actually going to advance the prosecution much. It's just going to feel good, but it's not going to advance the prosecution. It might, it might even hurt it, right? Because it right. might get the, all the media organizations in as a Mickey on Assange's yeah. behalf. Draw this narrowly. And then the question becomes, do they have admissible evidence to back up the more narrowly drawn charges? So can I, Bobby, can I ask, is it clear to you that all of the relevant statutes apply extraterritorially? Mm, good question. Um, well, no, I haven't really parsed that. So the presumption against extraterritoriality looms large here. Right? right. So I imagine that one of Assange's defenses, if we ever get that far, would be that the relevant statutes, especially under the Supreme Court's modern obsession with the presumption against extraterritorial application, don't apply extraterritorially. I wonder if that w- works better for the conversion statute. Well, what about the SMTJ and the Special Maritime and Territorial Jurisdiction or yeah. various other heads of extra... If Manning, so far as, if Manning so far as was Manning's deployed crime, abroad, right. right. And, and, of course, the complicating factor is if... Depending on which charge we're talking about, the con- the conspiracy may well have been extraterritorial, except for the possibility of a physical touchdown through Manning's presence. And that's on the, the military question. Base. So, so how it's charged is going to be interesting on that front. All I'm saying is, folks yeah. should not ignore that extraterritoriality may be a relevant question here, and yet it's something else for DOJ to think carefully about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good point. All right, good. Hey, I, right. I made one good point. <laughs> I'm going to give you at least that one. I'll All be. Right ambiguous as to whether there were others. Um, I mean, surely you agree that Hawaii is is only one island in the Pacific. Not only do I agree with it, I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to uh, other characters from our show. I'd rather, uh, I, I wish we could go there right now. You know, uh, readers, send in their donations, and if, if we get enough money... We'll have a big island We will episode. broadcast, and we'll, we'll use your name on air. <laughs> Broadcasting live from the big island. And half sober. Um which is an improvement over right. the usual way we do. You'll be sober and I won't be. Is that <laughs> that is unlikely? Um, Mike Flynn, what oh, is happening now? What's the guy. latest? We should we'll move quickly through these remaining topics. So you know, Bobby, there's an interesting coincidence um, where right about the time that uh, my favorite congressman and yours, Jason Chaffetz, announced that he was not going to run for re-election. Wait, in let's be clear. My favorite congressman is Mac Thornberry, UT law alum. Hook him, Mac. I Go think, ahead. I think everyone understood that I was being sorry. I am a former resident of the District oh, of Columbia. Oh, I thought you were dead serious. I am, I am not even a little serious. All right. Um, so Jason Chaffetz apparently is tired of messing with Washington, D.C., and has decided to pack up his bags and go home no later than the 2018 elections. And then the, the second day story was perhaps even before then. Almost immediately after he said this, 
all of a sudden we get some aggressive request for information from the House Oversight Committee to the White House about the hiring of Michael Flynn as national security advisor, about disclosures that were were not made on his SF-86. Um, if you're not inside the Beltway nerds, the SF-86 is the sort of classic generic security clearance application form, um, right? It's so a sort of a personnel prerequisite. Um, and Bobby, other information about Flynn's contacts with not one, but two foreign governments in the days and weeks leading up to the uh, inauguration. So we've got Russia and Turkey in the picture here. The SF, uh, the, the form would have contained or should have contained disclosures galore about contacts with, with foreign governments and certainly paid work, paid work. So you can see why they want it. And, and let me say why this matters. I mean, we've talked a bit before about the Foreign Agents Registration Act, right? And the possibility that Flynn violated the act by not properly registering as a foreign agent. But, Bobby, there's a separate problem in Flynn's case, which is 18 U.S.C. Section 219, which makes it illegal, regardless of disclosure, to be holding an office of the U.S. government while you are a foreign agent. So if at any time from noon on January 20th until however shortly thereafter Michael yeah. Flynn was fired, um, he was still a foreign agent, yeah. he broke the law. Yeah, there's a, you know, I think we've come up with the title for this episode. That is a lot of sections of the criminal code to pack into one podcast. I thought we were going to call it the Hawaiian Geography Edition. I like mine better. Although, we, besides, we got to save your title for the time we actually broadcast from Hawaii. No, that'll just be called Live from Hawaii. <laughs> I have a feeling we will not turn an episode in that week. So <laughs> so, so you're suggesting It'll that short. Uh, having decided not to seek re-election, the chair of the committee has decided to, to act more aggressively. I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't say causation. I just noted the correlation. Correlation. Correlation is close enough. Uh, and, and, uh, and, of course, there will be immediate and overwhelmingly uh, friendly cooperation from the White House. That's with, exactly what happened today. No, what happened? So apparently on, actually it wasn't today, but the, the press has disclosed today um, that on April 19th, um, the White House, and I should say not just the White House, but the White House through the person of Mark Short, who is the Director of Legislative Affairs, a pretty mm -hmm. important billet uh, yep. in the White House, um, wrote back to Chairman Chaffetz and to Congressman Cummings, who's the ranking member of the Oversight Committee, um, and basically said, thanks, but no thanks, we're good. Well, you know, so... I think you're probably more bothered by this particular development than I am. I, my reaction is, when you look at look through it, it looks a lot like the kind of stuff you see in, in legislative executive skirmishes over production of documents, which in turn looks a lot like what happens in civil discovery more generally. The sort of parsing of, well, you didn't ask the right entity. Oh, that period of time is beyond when he worked for us. That's, okay, so, but so let's, so, so let's back up. So the first response was some of the stuff about his security clearance is in the DOD's files because his yep. clearance was processed by DIA. That's right. So go call them. Fine. That makes perfect sense to me. The third response right? Uh, request three, I'm now reading from the short letter, right? Okay. Request three seeks documents, quote, referring or relating to Lieutenant General Flynn's contacts with foreign nationals, including direct or indirect communications between Lieutenant General Flynn and foreign government officials, representatives, affiliates, or agents. To the extent this request seeks documents predating January 20th, they generally would not be in the possession uh, custody or control of this office. And so don't you think that's right? No. Those are campaign, those would all be campaign period. No. And transition period. Right. Tra is the, maybe the National Archives has custody of campaign you documents? You don't think the White House has any transitional documents? So, so all those nice memos that were written during the transition period just get shipped off to the National Archives automatically? Maybe they got rid of them. Who knows? But I, I don't think it's that surprising that they, that they denied responsibility for producing documents from pre-inaugural all right, so, so let's get to my favorite paragraph. Okay. Where I'm just building up to the crescendo here. <laughs> and with, I'm just poking at you from the side. That's right. And with respect to documents posted on January 20th, yes. parentheses listeners, when the real illegal activity most likely happened, close parentheses, Lieutenant General Flynn likely had contacts with a significant number of foreign nationals in his official capacity as National Security Advisor. Many, if not all, documents relating to such contacts are likely to contain classified, sensitive, and or confidential information. Moreover, it is unclear how such documents would be relevant to the stated purpose of the committee's review, which, according to your letter, is to examine Lieutenant General Flynn's disclosure of payments related to activities that occurred prior to his service in the White House. So I think that you could clearly say, look, I can, I can make an argument for why that post-inaugural 
further contact would be relevant to shed light on the relationship before. That, seems, that seems obvious to me. Um, and also to shed light on whether other illegal activity was was ongoing in the White House subsequent to inauguration. You mean the foreign, you're referring back to being a foreign agent. But at, also, I mean, right, so to say that some of the documents might contain classified and sensitive and, and confidential information is not to therefore say we therefore can't honor your request at all. all right, so that's what I was waiting to hear is what's, where's the rest of the sentence? Do they say, therefore, invoking such and such privilege, we shall not produce anything? Yep. Or do they just sort of... In light of these issues... General reference to issues. Yeah. We are unable to accommodate request three. Full stop. All right now, did, there was not a subpoena yet, right? No, we're not up to that. We're right. not up to that. So, to me, this is skirmishing. This is discovery litigation in the you know interbranch context. Skirmishing. If they'll now or they should now subpoena this stuff, and the government of the executive branch then can decide we're going to invoke specific privileges for specific items, and they're going to have to get into the the weeds of that. But Bobby, I mean, it seems to me that there's a big difference between Chaffetz signing a letter, right, and Mm -hmm. Chaffetz issuing a subpoena. And so, and so, right, so, so it seems to me that what the White House is saying is, you know, nice try, but you're going to have to come at us with a little more if you want this information. Yeah, that's kind of the point I'm making as well, that this is sort of the first round, the, the relatively friendly round. And this is, Relatively this friendly is, round. This is a rebuff of the request. We hear you. And, and they're calling their bluff, saying, like, you know, if you, if you want to subpoena it, try it. Yeah. Well, so that's fine. Um, but then we have Sean Spicer in today's White House press briefing. Oh, boy. Um, You're pulling Spicer on me. What do you got? Basically saying, you know, we had nothing to do with the vetting of Flynn to be national security advisor. We don't know what you're talking about. If there was a problem, it's not <laughs> Who, our fault. Who's Flynn? We don't, we don't know this Flynn you keep referring to. He had a very minor role in the campaign. Oh, wait, that was they Paul Manafort. Not say, okay. <laughs> you had me on that. No, no, well, no, they said that about Paul Manafort. Oh, I know, I know. Who you know was the I campaign know. manager. No, I know. He, he played a minor role. Like, don't look at me to defend something. Anyway, here. so all I'm saying is it seems to me that this is the very, very first sort of uh, appetizer. Absolutely. No, I think we're on the same page. For, for what is going to be, I think, a really serious um, interbranch fight, whether it's about Flynn or Russia or anything else for that matter, right? And whether it's because Chaffetz is leaving right. or because something else happened, right? This is just the beginning of what's going to be a dominant, powerful, important theme. Absolutely. And it won't be fought out strictly within the bounds of this particular inquiry by this particular committee. There'll be more back and forth. By the way, uh, just breaking news, I also just got an AP mobile alert that a federal district judge has blocked the Sanctuary City executive order. Oh, which judge? Uh, I'll have to go look that up while, 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 you, while you, you know. What are, what are we going to talk about Phil. next? So there's, there's, there's <laughs> Phil, got, Bobby, Phil. I'm tap dancing here. I'm tap dancing. Um, so let's talk real quick while, while Steve figures out what's going on with that breaking news. I'm going to say something real quick about this. It's weird to do breaking news on a recorded podcast. We should have a sound like a, like a proper show. Did it, did it, did it, did it. Dong, dong. So it's San Francisco. Oh, right. It's the Northern District of California. I'm just trying to remember which judge it is. Okay. While you look at that, let me say something about 702 and the data that was disclosed by Ooh, the fun. Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, which by statute has an obligation to disclose some annual summary statistics on the functions and activities of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance. Court. So remind everybody what 702 is. So 702 is the one that's going to be controversial later this year. It's the one that expires at the end of December this year, if not renewed. It's the one that is sort of the successor to what once was called the uh, either the terrorist surveillance program or the president surveillance program. Or both. This is the one where you get a you the NSA applies for a certification from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court uh, to be able to, without going and seeking an individual specific FISA court order, to be able uh, to target non-U.S. persons who are outside the United States um, in a way that involves the compulsory cooperation of U.S. telecoms whose whose systems uh, might be relevant for that collection. Uh, It is a tool that the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, the PCLOB, um, having having spoken very critically of bulk metadata collection, turned to the 702 tool and spoke about its importance. And there were some things you needed to change to tweak how it operates, but this is a critical intelligence collection device. Um, and so it's it's been renewed. It, it's been in place. What got news this week was the uh, data from the, uh, the office about FISA court activity indicated that in calendar year 2016, no applications for 702 authority. 
And the immediate reaction that a lot of people had, and I put myself in this category, was, oh, my God, they, they didn't use it last year. How can this be? <laughs> uh, and it, it sort of set up this moment of sort of panic. Wait, they, we all were convinced this was a huge deal to the government, and they weren't even using it. But then on reflection and with the help of, of cooler heads prevailing, some people pointed out that, well, there, there are many possible explanations other than, than that one. One possible explanation is that through some quirk of timing about when the data was gathered and when the most uh, recent existing authorizations expired, there could have been extensions of some kind. Um, it could be it just didn't show up in this data pool. It won't be clear until you see next year's data. And in the meantime, of course, we're already going to have renewed this thing. Um, one might expect in the process of hearings that, that will take place over the year relating to 702 renewal that one thing that at least privately, if not publicly, that, that Congress needs to get the bottom of is, is this really being used? Is there some reason it might not have been used? I suspect the true story, Steve, is that, in fact, uh, it is being used. There's, there still is some authority in place, but there was some complexity to the timing that made this particular data pool look a little funny. I think that's probably right, Bobby, but it also sort of helps further to set the stage for what we've said for a while is the coming reauthorization fight over 702. Absolutely. And I think that uh, a lot of forces are marshalling already to, to position themselves for that debate. Including seen, including the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which has a new Q&A about Section 702. Or at least they sort of did. Steve, what happened earlier today when you went looking for it? <laughs> well, so I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it too. It existed, a uh, an FAQ on 702. It's been out for a week or so. And so I went to the Tumblr, which Bobby has your favorite name of any Tumblr ever. Uh, you mean I see on the record? Uh, I, I'm sure you mean I con the record. I'm sure they meant I see on the record, <laughs> but probably hadn't said it out loud as they run on sentence before they put where, it where, up there. Where are the communications people when I, we need them? I can't give them a hard time because I really appreciate the fact that they put that thing out yeah. there and really are trying. I mean, it's a it's a sea change. Show me any other intelligence entity that does it. Anyway, all I'll say is as of 3.19 p.m. Central Time on, on April 25th, you get a 404 error not found when you go to the link. Got to be. I, I think we agree. This has got to be just a technical mess up, but oh, it's sure. funny because it, it fuels conspiracies. Just you know? what we need, right, at this day and age. But anyway, so, so Bobby, I mean, I think these are all just added to the pool of data points about 702, about concerns about 702, about the fight over 702 reauthorization. Um, Congress can't hide from this baby forever. No, no, and it's not going to. Because right? 702 expires on December 31st. And I'll tell you what's really unfortunate. I mentioned earlier the important role the PCLOB played. In legitimizing and providing comfort and assurance both about the utility of 702 as an intelligence collection tool and the idea that it's being operated within reasonable bounds or at least could easily be brought into that operation. Um, the thing about PCLOB is it is, and here comes Steve's favorite word, it's Inquirate. Inquirate. <laughs> Bobby, what, that, there's a title for This episode is Inquirate. This episode is Inquirate. Well, no, because we're both here. Is that a quorum? I, I hope so. <laughs> we miss. <laughs> so, Bobby, what does inquirate mean? It means you lack a quorum. Oh, you lack a quorum. That that was more obvious than um, I thought it would be. PCLOB is is down to one member. It's a it's a five member body by in statute. Theory. It is, and a quorum is three. And a quorum is three in this context. And it's actually it's really sad right now if you go to the PCLOB webpage and you go to the list of board members. No, it's just Beth. It's just Beth. Yeah, Beth is great, but it's only Beth, and she can't take official action for the PCLOB by herself. Which I'm not sure bothers her. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that PCLOB demonstrably – I, I recognize there are a lot of people who are critics of PCLOB as it moved away from uh, analyzing bulk metadata and analyzing 702 and began to look at other things. But at the end of the day, the, the public service rendered in connection with those two original programs is pretty powerful, and it was somewhat uniquely able to do that. And in an environment where HIPSI and SISI, the, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Them again. Committee, those guys, when, when, when it just seems increasingly likely that it, at best we'll have, you know, complex and controversial investigative process from both of them. Right. Um, PCLOB sure would be handy in this context. And, and, and was on 702. I mean, I think, exactly. that, I think that PCLOB 702 report, although I have some quibbles about it, and I, can, and I, I actually testified before PCLOB in its 702, I guess, process, um, is as thorough and even-handed and useful yeah. a document about what 702 does and doesn't authorize and what legal issues it does and doesn't raise as is out there. And, and you know, if you wanted some entity that was in a position with credibility and in right. some reasonable degree of trust to look into this this faux controversy about yep. unmasking. Yep. At least that's how right. I view it. That would be uh, P right. would be a great vehicle for that. But so so Bobby, so so if it remains without a quorum, 
it, it's not doing anything. Now, I guess what I think the upshot is there, there's been a lot of whispering about how well 702 renewal is going to now take place against the backdrop of all this unmasking business and suggestions of concern about how any sort of incidental collection on U.S. persons could lead to abuse. Well, you know what? If you, if you feel obliged, if you're in Congress and you feel obliged to show you did something to tighten things yep. up, well, then include in the renewal legislation something that gestures towards the need to have PCLOB actually exist and have a quorum right. after a certain amount of time has passed. Right. And say right. Say that if the president doesn't fill those seats within X amount of time, right. somebody else can. So this led to my question to you earlier today, yes. which uh, we I, I sent Steve a note saying, you know, are you aware of any literature out there that talks about the president's power not to a point, that is, to uh, attrit an organization such as an administrative agency, or in this case, the P-Club, to intentionally attrit it into an incorate status so it can't <laughs> function. How's that for a law professor? Oh, science? my God. Intentionally attrit it into an incorate status and leave it there for four years so, so it's effectively neutralized. And, and so my response, since, since I hope not everyone is reading our emails back and forth to each other, um, <laughs> I'm, t- I'm talking to you, NSA. Um, right, Bobby, my oh, response was... Come on. <laughs> I, I'm just, it's a I know, joke. I know, I know. A little, sen- little sensitive, are we? Yeah. Um, so my response was, I actually think it's much more of an issue in, for example, the Supreme Court context, um, where you have... And, and let me sort of elaborate on that, than in the executive branch context, because in theory, the president's the head of the executive branch if he wants to, you know... It seems to me that it would raise problems if someone else could tell the executive who he has to appoint to executive branch positions. Um, the courts, Bobby, I think are a little different because yeah. you know it seems to me that it would deprive Article Three of its purpose and it would deprive the Supreme Court of what Henry Hart called its essential functions. No doubt. Hey, that, that's what Dick Fallon taught me as well. Um, I he, think that, He was teaching from the same hymnal. <laughs> Indeed he was. So I think, and, and Professor Fallon, if you're listening, thank you. So if, he's uh, not listening. I'm quite sure he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think you're right. As soon as you're talking about harming one of the other institutions of government, and really it's the, the it's federal the courts. courts that come up here, now an Article One court of some kind. So, well, so, so it's actually, there is the only provision I'm aware of, Bobby, where the president's appointments authority can be overridden by some other body involves the D.C. Court of Appeals, right? Not the D.C. Circuit. This is the, the, the co- local court. The local court in D.C., this, the quasi-state Supreme Court, where the president has to choose the nominee for a seat on that court from a list of nominees submitted to him by the D.C. Judicial Nominations Commission. And if he doesn't choose one of those names within, I think, it's 60 days. Are they automatically? The commission picks one. Oh, wow. Right? So yeah. that's that's the closest, but that's an Article One yeah. court. So I don't know if that might have, like, the weakest constitutional objection. I, I don't know what yeah. the answer is. And, and just to be fair, this is not an argument for why, for example, the Senate might have had to confirm Merrick Garland. I'm one of those who don't think they no, right. had a constitutional right. obligation to do so. But the Supreme Court's quorum is six. It is not clear to me that there would be no constitutional objection if a president just refused to fill even the sixth seat on yeah, the yeah. court. I, I think it's right. And I also think, so I think here as to P-Club, I don't, I don't think the president has an obligation within some, I mean. Not a constitutional obligation. Right, to, to, to appoint members. Now, what would get interesting, though, is what if a statute is passed that says that within a certain amount of time, if the right. president doesn't name one. Then, then the intelligence committees can. Yeah, or, or, or just like, you know, the, this person shall be named. Bobby or, or, or just, you know, heaven forbid. But, or what if it just said by such and such a date. Yep. And the president shall do it. It's just a mandate. Yep. And then the question is, does the take care obligation require the president to execute that law? Or is that an improper attempt to uh, commandeer the executive? So let me suggest that I don't think we're going to see one of those statutes anytime soon. Um, but that, you know, the fate of the PCLOB is to me yet another interesting piece of the 702 reform conversation. Absolutely. Um, so, Bobby, let's pivot quickly to two court developments um, and then we're going to do some frivolity and get out of here. So the court developments, the first is our breaking news. I, I've done my crack research team here at <laughs> National Security Law Podcast Studios um, has been hard at work over the last six and a half minutes. You get what you pay for. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so basically, I actually was familiar with this case. I just didn't realize that the ruling was going to come down today. Um, Bobby, Santa Clara County and the city of San Francisco sued the Trump administration challenging the other immigration executive order, the sanctuary jurisdiction executive order, which had authorized um, or basically had sort of threatened to, threatened to and indeed did purport to withhold funding from those local jurisdictions that adopted uh, immigration enforcement policies that were at odds with whatever the dictates of the Justice Department were. Um, the basic gist of the city and county's argument was that this was commandeering. Uh, right. And so back to your commandeering Prince. point. 
Uh, yeah. Indeed. The real commandeering doctrine. The real commandeering doctrine, um, that this was actually federalism a textbook doctrine. violation of Justice Scalia's majority opinion in Prince by basically telling local law enforcement officers what their enforcement priorities should and should not be as a matter of federal law and doing so at the sort of barrel of a gun to wit federal funding. Um, so it, would you describe this as the inter- – this starts to sound like a good con law exam question. Oh, oh, my God. If you are a 1L and your con law exam is in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, watch out for the intersection of conditional spending. And anti-commandeering. And anti-commandeering. So, so the – South Dakota v. Dole fights Prince. Exactly. So the judge in this case, the Honorable William H. Oreck, um, who's an Obama appointee who Bobby spent some time as the deputy AAG of the Civil Division at mm. DOJ, mm. Um, has issued a nationwide injunction. Ooh. Here we go again. Um, barring the <laughs> enforcement of Section But he didn't do it from an island in the Pacific, did he? No, he did it from an island in San Francisco Bay. Well, it's actually from a... from a... He did it from a peninsula. That's much better. In San Francisco Bay. Although it would be really, really cool if he actually went to Alcatraz to do it. That would be that would be baller. Can I just say, by the way, I mean, I, I'm sorry, Jeff Sessions. I don't care if you actually got the geography correct. The fact that Hawaii is in the Pacific has no bearing on the power of district judge. Either district judge. I'm pretty can, sure you're right about that. Because you know what else is an island, Bobby? Manhattan. Ooh. Right. Is he also nice. saying that a district judge in Manhattan can't issue a nationwide injunction? I would. I would imagine that. If given the chance to recast the whole statement, he would say, you know, I have a problem with individual district judges issuing nationwide injunctions. Good. Then where was he when individual district <laughs> judges in Brownsville, Texas, and in ah. eastern Texas were issuing nationwide injunctions, striking down DAPA and DACA, striking down the Labor Department's overtime rules? I mean, listen. You're not suggesting we could find quotes from him applauding those rulings. I, I think, I, 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 I suspect that many of uh, Attorney General Sessions' friends were very quiet about the objection to the assertion of federal power. Um, there's a longer conversation, Bobby, to be had about nationwide injunctions, and I don't think we're going to have it today. Um, the point for present purposes is this is a nationwide injunction putting on hold the critical part of the sanctuary jurisdiction executive order. I imagine we're going to see yet another appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and here we go again. Yeah, this is going to keep us in business for a while. All right, one more quick note on courts. Bobby, on Monday, we talked about this briefly at the top. The Supreme Court denied certiorari in the ACLU's FOIA suit. Um, just to make a, a very long story short, the ACLU had basically requested um, a full copy, right, of the whole 6,000-plus word torture report. Um, now, of course, the torture report's a congressional document, Bobby. FOIA is about agency records. But the ACLU's argument was that when Congress transmitted copies of the report to, among other stakeholders, DOJ and CIA, they became agency records. Um, the actual D.C. Circuit decision that the ACLU was appealing said that's wrong. It did not become agency records because the Intelligence Committee continues to purport to control the document, sort of technical FOIA law. The larger point to me is this was not about non-disclosure because of classification. Right, this is sort of a technical FOIA problem, yeah, yeah. not a, oh no, there's too much national security information in right. there. Okay. And the Supreme Court on Monday said, eh, DC Circuit said it's not an agency record. We're not going to touch that. No recorded dissents. And that's, do you think that'll be the end of this yeah. particular story until the whole thing just leaks out? Well, so, so it's interesting. We can, so, we can so the footnote to this is, right, there's real concern among human rights and, and anti-torture groups that the Trump administration is going to destroy the report. Right. And so there's been an effort to obtain what's called a preservation order um, in some of the Guantanamo litigation. Um, Your friend and mine, Judge Royce Lambert, issued such an order um, in one of the Guantanamo habeas cases. Um, And so there is now, at least at the moment, a pending preservation order that has a copy of the report in the physical possession of the D.C. District Court. Wow. Okay, so I, I predict at some point, someday, somewhere, this thing sees the light of day. Because, Where's WikiLeaks when we need it? Right. Well, <laughs> but maybe in the dock. The, the point is to say that I think there's a longer conversation to be had about the 6,000-page report. FOIA is not going to be the answer, but at least for the moment, it's also not going to be destroyed. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll have to just put a pin in that and see where we go from there. So to wrap up, and then we've got to end things, uh, you have a view on... Um, the best character on TV right now. So, so Bobby, I've mentioned before on this podcast and to anyone who will listen that I'm a fan of the Showtime series Billions, um, right? Even though I keep getting confusing Bobby Axelrod with Adrian Brody from Homeland because it's the same character, <laughs> whatever. Um, so I have to say, I have, over the course of the last few episodes of Billions, become increasingly impressed um, and increasingly sort of excited about uh, the character of Taylor Amber Mason, Um, who is the sort of superstar, brilliant, up-and-coming analyst of all things in Bobby Axelrod's firm, um, and who is uh, a non-binary, who's gender non-binary, 
um, and who actually is played by Asia Kate Dillon, who is themselves gender non-binary. And it's the first time that I'm aware of that a major part in a TV series um, for a gender non-binary individual has been played by a gender non-binary actor, and they are fantastic. So this raises actually an interesting question about you know possible awards for the show in categorization, right? Does Golden Globes or, or, or Daytime Emmys or anything, does do any of the major acting award shows uh, have a policy to handle that situation? So Dylan apparently wrote a letter to the Golden Globes about this. There's actually a whole internet like oh, okay. you know, discussion of My this. My instinct was right. Um, where they requested to be considered in the actor category. Yeah. Um, I think as much for, I, I mean, I'll, I'll let readers who are interested go check this out. But I, I want to say, I mean, like my attraction to the character, I, I think it's cool that both the character and the actor is gender non-binary. But there's just like, the character is so brilliantly smarter than everybody and more thoughtful than everybody and more observant than everybody. And if you are watching Billions, I don't think this is a spoiler alert. On last night's episode, or Sunday's episode, this is how we watch TV, right? Um, (laughs) Sunday's episode, um, Taylor really um, takes some very important strides toward becoming an even more important figure Mm. in the story. And I was very excited by that. And you got to the conclusion that this makes that character better than Tyrion Lannister. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, that's I was with you until you said that. I'm a sucker for Peter Dinklage. I think he's a brilliant actor. I think Tyrion Lannister is the most like lovably inspired character on television. On, on a show where you really can't like any of the characters at all. Right, Tyrion is actually the one who seems well. Okay, not my, even Ser Jorah. I mean, that poor guy. It's kind of sympathetic. He was an assassin, dude. Sir Jorah, come on. He's he's hopelessly in love. He's following yeah, Danny around. Yeah, didn't everybody relate to that? So my wife loves Danny, and I understand the allure of that. But I I'm a Tyrion person. But but Tyrion is like, I mean, compared to the Taylor Mason character on Billions, Tyrion is two dimensional. Well, yeah, that's true. He, he is a little bit that, and well, I don't mean that as a height joke. No, I should hope not. I <laughs> I think we're all looking forward to seeing. I to me the big interesting question with all the Game of Thrones characters. During the last season, did you think that the dialogue dropped off and that his dialogue in particular went from being compelling and clever and funny to being kind of wooden and predictable? Um, Yeah, but I think, I mean, listen, I think that the last couple of episodes of season six, there was a little bit, you know, they had less time for sort of dialogue sophistication because yeah. there's just too much going like the season finale yeah yeah um which i have said and i will continue to say is the greatest single hour of television i've ever seen in my life there's you know if you stopped for the kind of sophisticated nuanced witty repartee that marked prior Tyrion land i mean he does still have in the finale this really powerful conversation with danny this is part of my problem with though he's not a rogue anymore yeah and, and to me, right. just, now he's, he's totally predictable. Sees, that's why I agree with you saying he's two dimensional. Uh, because he's just because not he's just, now he's just right. You know what he's going to say before he says no, it. In fact, he's he's kind of got this heroic quality. Well, you know, it was much better when he was he was a little bit of a dirtbag, but kind of with the heart of gold. That makes for a more compelling. And, and isn't it ironic, right, that on Game of Thrones, the character who's the who we sort of lose interest in is the one who's actually heroic. Exactly. That's not why we watch Game of Thrones, I guess. It is not. On that note, that's probably not why you listen to this podcast. So we but should, you don't want to say anything uh, about movies for Andy? No, no, sorry, Andy. We're going to save that for next time. Oh, cliffhanger. Cliffhanger edition. There, there, there's a TV show uh, uh, a hit for you. Um, all right. Well, everybody, listen. Thanks for listening. Um, I suspect we'll probably have a little bit more to talk about next week for episode 15. No doubt about it. And Bobby, maybe we'll have music. Yeah, maybe so. All right, folks. Thanks a lot. Stay safe out there, everybody. Uh, adios.